Today on Sagittarian Matters, punk money-saving tips, boners I've seen at karaoke, writing exercises, and more. With my guest, Chelsea Johnson. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the Hello from Los Angeles, California. I am getting ready to go on tour and I have a lot of news. The first thing is this week I announced online that I'm going to be in the upcoming Mad Magazine. I have a comic in Mad and I was like, oh my God, all my childhood dreams are now essentially accomplished. But don't worry because one hour later, some completely random men on Twitter who have 26 followers between them wrote in all caps that I did not deserve to be in Mad Magazine. So all I really have to say is that these gentlemen, they obviously haven't seen the sandwich artist certificate that my mom sent me this week, circa 1996. I've been an artist for that long. So 20 years? I've been a certified artist for that long. Ask me to make you a sandwich sometime. I think you're really going to like it. Um, I just finished the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, and it was frightening. It's a book about a serial killer, the Golden State Killer, who essentially breaks into people's homes and wakes them up by standing over them with a flashlight. So as soon as I finished the book, I you know, essentially boarded up on my windows and booby-trapped my house like home alone. So essentially imagine me living in a place with um, Christmas ornaments under all the windows and like a flaming hot iron on a rope, just like sitting, you know, in the stairwell ready to hit an assailant in the face. I am trying to think of ways to make Ponyo be a little more on her guard dog game, but I haven't quite figured that part out yet. I do recommend the book if you don't mind being scared. Lastly, I'm about to get 500 copies of Anonymous Fuzzball printed this week and I will be bringing them with me to New York City for Mocha Fest April 7th and 8th. If you don't know, Anonymous Fuzzball is my series of drawings of animals saying wise words in a group therapy setting. I will have copies of these at Mocha, and then we'll be putting them online. And associate producer Danette will be sending them out to you while I am on tour. Okay, today on the show, we have Chelsea Johnson. Chelsea Johnson received an MFA in fiction from the Iowa Writers' Workshop, a Stegner Fellowship from Stanford, and she used to be my next-door neighbor. Chelsea has a new book called Stray City that is a novel about Portland in the 90s, identity and family. In this episode, I'm including our very candid chat about karaoke, which includes a lot of rules and some boners. I'm also including our live conversation that we had at Powell City of Books in Portland, Oregon last week. And lastly, Chelsea threw down some serious writing wisdom and offered some writing exercises for people who want to work on character, dialogue, or long projects. That's at the very end. Now, please enjoy my talk with Chelsea Johnson. Chelsea Johnson, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Well, hi, Nicole. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan. I've been listening since the very beginning. What are 
are your karaoke principles or guiding rules? One thing I really appreciated about Portland is I feel like there was a very established karaoke etiquette that you learned and everybody followed. And when I go to other cities, I'm horrified at people's, like, for example, you never bring up more than one slip at a time. And you bring a dollar with every slip you tip, as a tip. You tip your KJ every time you sing. At least a dollar. A dollar is like, you know, that's what it was when I started KJing. I don't think it's changed that much <laughs> unless people are trying to bribe you. Right. Karaoke or karaoke inflation. Um, you don't try to sing. And if you're a KJ also, you don't have people sing twice before everybody else has had a chance to sing once. Like the E-Room had an unfair KJ and it like it was that place became dead to me. Because mm-hmm. you'd see the same friends get to sing twice before you'd even had a chance. There and needs you, to be justice. Yeah. And also, a duet counts as your turn. Yeah. Absolutely counts as your turn. You don't do songs that are seven minutes long. You don't do Bohemian Rhapsody. Which I've done. <laughs> <laughs> All rules are made to be yeah, broken. Yeah. You know, certain songs are extremely overdone. Like I, I, I felt like at a certain point, there was no point in doing Total Eclipse of the Heart. As brilliant a song as it is, somebody was always going to sing it. Or Love Shack. For no, example, Love Shack that. is for amateurs and groups of eight. I don't want to hear Baby Got Back. No. I don't want to hear Living on a Prayer. No. I don't want to hear any generic quote-unquote butt rock song that people mm. are like, this is so fun and I look so badass. Mm-hmm. As a KJ, I was like, you don't look badass. No. You look stupid. Every, like, everyone else has had that same idea before you. Uh-huh. And I'm, it's tired. Yeah. Find a new one. Turn the station. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say, I have to really second that Baby Got Back critique. Because people also vastly underestimate that song. I don't think I've ever seen anybody hit all of the words in that song. They don't realize you can't breathe when you're doing that song. You can't breathe, but also it's like always a white guy. Mm-hmm. And it's always someone that, like, I'm grossed out when there's the uh, double uh, uh. Like, I don't want to <laughs> hear about most of their anacondas. No. And, like, the only good part of that song, I think karaoke wise is hearing the beginning where they're like oh my god becky look at her butt like that's literally the only part of the song that's good and the rest of it i don't want to see some guy being like i'm gonna talk about what part of your body gives me the biggest boner for four and a half minutes absolutely tape your boner down Mm -hmm. oh the worst thing ever was when i was karaoke jockey that's like a dj at sloan's tavern and this group of coked out people came which i was like oh my god these people are so enthusiastic because I have no drug no. radar. And this guy who worked at the... Ponyo. Producer Ponyo hates this story. But this guy who worked at um, Big City Produce saying, I want to fuck you like an animal. Oh, no. By um, Nine Inch Nails. And he, like, put his leg up on a chair and was, like, humping the air to the music. Oh, and would no. really get into saying, like, fuck you. Like, just really into it. That's, that's felt, like, abusive. Me too. Hashtag me too. <laughs> Like you molested the whole room. No, that's horrible. That's horrible. Okay, well, let's talk about a good karaoke experience that we had. The the last, like, truly great karaoke experience (laughs) I had, in fact, was with you when we went to the Lakeside Tavern in Richmond. Oh, when I got a boyfriend. Oh, that's right. I forgot that you got a boyfriend. That was not a highlight of the (laughs) night. But what made that karaoke so great is that it was truly intergenerational. There were so many senior citizens at that bar, at that tavern. There was alcoholics of all ages. It was fabulous, (laughs) including one senior citizen with a tambourine. And if you were, she would play along. And if you were really good, i.e. if you were Nicole, she even got up and danced. Yeah, she put down her tambourine and got up and danced with me. It was so sweet. And the KJ had really great reverb and he has an applause track. 
So after mm-hmm. you, it's like a hundred people cheering for you when you finish, even though it's five. And also he treated it as if he were like a seventies a, a radio DJ. And next up, we're going to hear a little Fleetwood Mac from, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of want to include in my comedy bit about the stupid things you have to say when you're a KJ. Like you have to say, mm. put your hands together and give it up. Like, <laughs> whenever you're like a host of something and people come in, you have to in, in, make everyone give it up. <laughs> there was once a really a really entertaining KJ at some random bar in Portland I went to with our friends Winner and Amanda. And Winner and Amanda did a duet where Amanda just failed, you know, fantastically, like a, a spectacular fail. And when they were leaving, the KJ just said, Winner just carried you like a tote bag. Oh! And I actually appreciated a saucy KJ wow. who was just like, yeah, you, you bombed that. Thank, good luck for your, you know. Good That's pretty good. Out. Um, I do have to say a couple more lowlights of being a KJ were sometimes people at the Paragon would bring their own CD, their own track. Oh, yeah. Like R&B guys that had like laid down a track in some recording studio in the mall or something and then would just like sing along to it. Oh, they'd already pre-recorded their vocals? Yeah. Wait, I just remember this one time. Oh, my God. What was he singing? I wish I could remember. This guy. It's in my old like live journal mm-hmm. or diary land. This guy was singing an R&B song, like, I'll Make Love to You kind of song. And then this tiny, short woman who was, like, 4'11 or something started grind dancing. And she did a backbend, so her head was essentially grind dancing on his crotch. And then he got a boner (gasps) while he was singing. And he said, oh, now I'm embarrassed. And knelt for the rest of the song with his T-shirt over his knees to hide (laughs) his boner. And the lady was, like, four foot tall. And she had, like, huge jugs and a shirt that said Diva across her boobs. I was really tight. Oh, my God. (laughs) And bedazzled jewels. Did you dream this? No, this was at the Paragon in Portland, Oregon. This is old Portland. People want to know what happened in old Portland is people got boners while they were doing karaoke. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, Chelsea. Yes, Nicole. You moved to Portland around 2003. Yeah. How did it feel to be a queer person entering Portland for you in 2003? It was really exciting. I moved here. I After grad school, I would moved to New York very briefly, and it was a very hard, difficult time. Like, the... I think the night before I moved to Portland, the Iraq War bombing, like the first bombing of Baghdad had happened. And I remember leaving this like dark, cold, freezing, horrible city and landing here. And it was like morning and it was green and lush and the cherry blossoms were blooming. And I thought like a unicorn would cross the street at any second. Um, It was really thrilling. And I think I found my first like really vast queer community here. Like I'd always had like queer friends here and there, but never this like awesome, sometimes incestuous, sometimes suffocating network of people who all knew each other and had slept with each other in various configurations, but were really fantastic, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was, an, amazing, it was an amazing time to, to be here. You, I came out here because it was such a safe place to come out. It was no big deal. Yeah. It was no, I came from Kansas City. There was nowhere to run to if you were gay in Kansas City. There was nowhere right. to go. Like, you could come out, but like, to what? Yeah, there was right. no one. Like I remember, there was a lesbian with a rat tail that would steal from the store where I work, <laughs> and that was it. And she liked Anita Franco. That was your my, community. My own internalized homophobia. I was like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Anita Franco, yuck. But then I was like, you know, singing along to it. Right. I, I yeah, totally. I I had been out before I got here, but I hung out I think more with gay men than with other lesbians. Like besides like my former girlfriend at the time, I mostly hung out with gay men. And then I came here, and of course, if you're a lesbian here, you never see a gay man. So, yeah. So I was forced to find other other people. But also, it was Portland then. You told yeah. me, I may reveal that you used to sell plasma for money here. 
had to make a living. I like ate the blackberries off the bushes behind my house. Same. Samples at Safeway. Yeah. Sold plasma. Yeah. That was my living until I got a job at Baskin Robbins. That was before 2003. This was when I was a teenager and lived here for a little bit. Oh, you lived yeah. here as a teenager? Oh, when I was 19. Yeah, I spent a summer here. Well, I yeah. just remembered recently, I used to save the paper transfers from TriMet. I would save them in a book so I could reuse them by covering up the day code when I showed them to the guy. That's a huge savings. I, Portland taught me so many of these like life life hacks they would be called now but then they were just like strategies for living yeah well like yeah like you never pay full price for nutritional yeast you get the fine ground and you say it's cornmeal <laughs> i didn't know that one. i mean i but that and like the coffee codes thing i had to stop when i was over 30 right and my girlfriend at the time was like i'm not gonna get excluded from new seasons for you saving two dollars <laughs> i was like I was like, make sure you put the code for the New Seasons brand of coffee, not Stumptown. Right. <laughs> you, did you ever do the trick in your zine days where you would um, you would cover a, a post a postage stamp with Elmer a thin oh, layer of, of Elmer's glue? Did you guys know? And so then, when it got stamped, yeah, when it got to you, you could just wash, wash that right off, and you had a brand new stamp all over again. You had saved yourself twenty two cents or whatever they well, were. Well, also, and like not to just go down this because we could do this literally forever. Right. But I mean, and this was a midwestern thing. Was I, we would have these. Well, a few things. In Portland, you could use magnets to clear out a Kinko's card, so you could get unlimited copies. That's good. A Kinko, or you would steal the Kinko's copy keys and then replace it with a key that had fewer <laughs> copies on it. Or to make a long distance phone call, you could hold a recording of this certain sound up to the payphone. Yes, so when you were on tour and you wanted to talk to your girlfriends, that's what you would do. Yeah. Well, you're going to pay for a calling card. What are you, a, a billionaire? <laughs> um, so old Portland. I mean, you talk yeah. about the E-Room, which yeah. is a real place. Mm-hmm. Are there other places? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, are there other places or things that were in the book that it was like visiting them? Because I know oh, you've, yeah. you've said in interviews that you started writing this book when you were teaching at Oberlin College and you were feeling really homesick. Yeah. I left Portland. And I'm, the other thing is that I'm writing about a time when I actually didn't live in Portland in 1998-99. So some things like La Luna I had been to when I was like 19 but not for a long time so I did I did a lot of research like I went to the Willamette Week archives and read like all of the Willamette Week from 1998 and 1999 mm-hmm. just fascinating like ads for pagers like there was a whole back page with ads for like websites it was like you know like the cyber page and it would be like www.teleport.net slash tilde like seven yeah. numbers slash go to this site yeah. So get your pager. Yeah, pretty much, right? Um, so, uh, but yeah, other places I wrote about were Satyricon, which had like died and then came back and then died again. So I did get that kind of on both ends of things. Yeah. Um, the E-Room, uh, I can't remember what else did I put in there. I made up some places. But when I was writing the book, I would come here and I would actually like drive around scouting for locations that I would write about. Like, where does Ryan live? Like, where does Andrea live? Like, yeah. where did all these things happen? Yeah. And did it feel like you were reconstructing Portland? For yourself? Yeah. It was my way of, like, making my own little Portland theater in my mind that I could go, like, live in when I when I was homesick. Yeah. And you know, I have to say, I hate that there's a spoiler. I mean, I know that, like, the spoiler needs to be there, so you're like, there's so I much tension. Yeah. Well, the spoiler being that she gets pregnant by a dude. Like, I wish that you all just picked Nicole up really this spoiled it. If you're avoiding the flat copy. Oh, notes. gosh. <laughs> well, I just, I just <laughs> wish that people would pick it up because they were like, Chelsea Johnson, I love her. Mm. Um, but then they were like, you have to say this part about the man on there. But, um... The thing that I think is so interesting was the man is how you started the book. Can you talk about that? Right. Yeah. I know somebody recently, Carter Sickles asked me recently, like, why did you, you know, did you, 
what were you thinking when you set out to write this queer book? And I was like, well, I didn't. And I think if I'd actually set out to be like, I'm going to write a, lo- a novel about lesbian life in Portland, I think I would have been paralyzed or like immobilized by the kind of dauntingness of that task. Like, how do you capture this like whole community and this whole time? And I would have felt like the burden of representation, like I was selling people out or whatever, but I didn't set out to do that. That like just kind of took me by surprise. I was writing a story about Ryan. Uh, there's the whole, the whole middle section of the book, which is now, well, I won't give anything away. It's really short. It was like 150 pages. And so this guy like is in Bemidji, Minnesota with a van and a cat. He's stuck. He's running out of money. And I was like, well, let's make things worse for him. Let's say he left a girlfriend back home in Portland. And then I was like, oh, I'm writing a straight story. There's a, like, it's a, it's a white straight guy fucking up. Like there's so much of that. And he's got a girlfriend pregnant, you know, and I was like, well, wait, what if she was a lesbian? And then I was like, oh, there's it. Like, how did that happen? And that was the challenge. Like, not only did I get to write about, like, this queer life and this queer person, but I also had, like, some, a real problem to figure out, like, how on earth that came to be. And when I started writing Andrea's section, then it just took over the whole book, and that became the book. But yeah. I, so I kind of to get, get at it through a back road. Did you feel that burden of representation once you got going? Yes. It was terrible. I had this, I had this like, little Facebook army in my head that was, like, tearing it to pieces as I wrote it. All the and trigger queers and trolls came out. Totally. And then I had all these academic, like, queer theorists on this shoulder, like, last, lacerating, you know, lashing into it. Um, and, yeah, I had a lot of inner criticism. I was very worried about, like, not doing people justice. And I, I didn't want to say anything mean about anyone or point out anything bad about lesbians. I felt very protective of it. And then... Uh, and, and Kara, my partner and first reader of all things, was like, this isn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> and I stewed about it for a couple days, and I was like, fuck, she's right. So how did you get more honest with yourself and block out the criticism? Well, that's a good question. I think I just realized that like, I had to just embrace that all the characters were going to be imperfect, and that there was humor in that, and that, of course, we still love people even with their flaws, and so it was okay to put them in there. It was much better than having, like, boring, nice, archetypal characters who did nothing wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What yeah. about you? What, what kind yeah. of... Like, your burden of representation also involves physically drawing people. I know. Yeah. Like, do you ever worry about that? About what you're... You know... What you're it, doing with your community? I worry because people are easier to spot. I mean, to me, <laughs> when I draw someone, I feel like it's like... It looks like a photograph. I'm like, mm. oh, everyone's going to know exactly who this is because I'm so good at drawing. <laughs> but then I found throughout time when I show people the drawings themselves, they're like see that you know so like maybe it's less but I feel like I'm like this is almost a legal issue this is so accurate the drawing I did I was cartoon with like spindly legs and yeah yeah but I do feel like well your your first draft of your book was called it was called it's not for you to know Mm -hmm. and I feel like that was like such a valuable thing about your book it's like you were kind of still guarding this safe space and this this very nice zone of queerness and queer community and queer family and even if it feels oppressive like it it was like a a safe nurturing space yeah and so that's something that the main character says to the man at some point when he's like you know probing a little too much about lesbian life yeah she's like that's not for you to know Mm -hmm. and that was really nice thanks um but yeah for me i feel like there's just more to be gained from um cultivating empathy in strangers that may not know any queer people yeah and so i want them to get to know me and know my story and know my community so then if they have to vote or make a choice or think about gay people and they don't know any they're like well i kind of know this person yeah that's, sort of. that's a good way to think about it yeah. I, I also worked out a lot through this the chapter about the lesbian art show they staged like a lesbian art show and of course it's got some terrible art in it you know <laughs> but it's also there's a lot of there's also a lot of anxiety about like, the burden of representation like you know she sees her straight boss come into the show and he's like ah lesbian she's like no stop and starts you know yeah but that was my way of kind of playing out my own anxieties about 
that stuff. But also, it's not all on me. There's plenty of other lesbian writers. There's lots of queer artists. Like, you know, you just, I think I also realized, like, I'm not alone in this. Maybe but, there's space now for, like, a more multifaceted. You know, it's not like when the L word came out and we're like, well, it's all we've got. <laughs> it's the only gay show. So it's the only one. So we're like, oh, it's terrible, but I can't stop watching. <laughs> and we couldn't just be like, oh, but that's the show about, like, cheesy West Hollywood lesbians. You know, we're like, it's the show about lesbians and everyone's going to get the wrong idea. And so, of course, as Portlanders watching that show, you're like, no one wears a fucking vest with no shirt underneath. <laughs> That's not real. I mean, you couldn't even do that. You'd get so cold. Yeah, and your right. chest would get covered in rain. Yeah. And mold. Um, well, I wanted to talk to you about that, too. I mean, we'll talk about straightness in a second. Mm-hmm. But um, I wanted to talk about, like, what does it mean to have written this story about them? Because, you know, there's, there's a lot more biphobia in the late 90s, early 2000s. In the lesbian scene, you know, mm-hmm. like if you were a lesbian and you strayed and you went down that path, it was and when you were young and, you know, I, you know, really into your identity politics, it was, people would be aghast. Yeah. They'd be like, you did what? Yeah. They'd be like, don't bring that disease rot into our community. Yeah. <laughs> like, what have you done? It was actually during a viewing of The L Word where I heard somebody say, like, remember when Tina gets with a man and she said, this person said, um... If one of my friends got with a man, I would not talk to her anymore. Which is like, crazy. Yeah, totally. No, so I, did, I really deliberately said it in that time because identity politics were a lot more rigid. Mm-hmm. And we also, yeah, like now, I mean, so many of our people are trans or like, or you do just date a cis man and like, it's a little, it's a little easier. I yeah. would say it's not like without like some punitive consequences within the community, but it's a little less overtly just like, oh, you have sinned. Um, I mean, I felt like, because I did this, mm-hmm. I went retro and I felt like the <laughs> majority of that was in my head mm-hmm. because also as you yeah. age and lesbians get to a certain age there's some I feel I mean this is my own science so you know don't don't, <laughs> don't report a science journal but like you know it's like your, your eggs are kind of drying up and they're yeah. like how about you get with a guy let's just see what that's just like and yeah. your body is just like you know, it's like toxo or something you're just like I just I'm gonna go for that and but so then you find once you do it like in your head you're like I'm the only person who's ever done this and I'm the worst person and then I went to my friend's gay wedding and I was like you guys guess what I did and they, nobody cared. Right. They were like, they're like, what's the story here? And I was like, I'm dating a cisgendered man. Did it blow your mind? Should I grab the mic during toasts and tell everybody? And they're like, nobody cares. It's as tale as old as time. Yeah, totally. Lesbians of a certain age going and doing that, it's like not a new thing. I had a friend call me very worried. And this was in like 2003. That was like, I have something to tell you. She was in New York. She called me like across the country to be like, are we like well you still be my friend I was like of course like what who cares yeah we have plenty of we have plenty in common right but I think when you're a little bit younger and you're a little bit more you know yeah there's a there feels like there's a lot at stake with your identity and what your peers think is super important and but also yeah. now, you know, like in 2018, mm-hmm. you know, transness, queerness, gender queerness, like I feel like more people are taking on the title queer as opposed to bisexual, but right. like it's not as binary. Yeah. And it gives you more flexibility to do things. And if people are judging you, then they're outed as a-holes a lot quicker. Yeah. <laughs> and there are, like, you know, trigger warning, there are some biphobic rants in the book. Yeah. But they are like of the time and of the character. And, yeah. and of course, Andrea's doing this bi thing, you know, yeah. if we want to get serious, you know. And so there's obviously some inherent contradiction in this. But it does yeah. feel like you know like you have this community you have this family and your family is based around your identity and so mm-hmm. then when you break that you're like what do I have yeah do I need to still defend it yeah and I, I really I liked I liked that portrayal in your book well, as someone who's jumped the fence and jumps back <laughs> I really really appreciate that do you think that. you'll ever write about that yeah I want to do a book called uh, My Straight Ear from Venus to Mars and Back Again <laughs> <laughs> but 
I don't want to draw it because I'm tired of drawing myself. Oh, so I'm kind of it? well. I don't. I want it to be like a TV show, or probably I'll just draw it. But I don't want to draw myself having sex. I don't know what to do. Oh yeah, just slow down. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I was just telling her I was like, I probably drawn like three vaginas in my whole life. Like yeah. I never. Well, I don't know. If I don't want to draw. I don't want to draw far. naked bodies. <laughs> I'm a prude. Um, mm-hmm. Just draw a little curtain. Just have the the, the panel fade. A panel. Okay. Fade out. Yeah. Perfect. Um, I do want to talk about writing. Mm. So I was one of your early readers. Mm-hmm. I was over. I don't want anyone to think I wasn't overjoyed to edit a 500 page book because I was because I was like, oh my god, this is Chelsea's thing that she's been working on yeah. for years, mm-hmm. and it was great. One thing I want to know as a writer is how do you avoid cliches? Because you're a writing teacher also. Yeah. So I want to know, how does teaching writing inform your process as a writer-writer? Mm-hmm. And then how do you avoid cliches in your writing? Teaching writing helps a lot because you see all the cliches. They're pouring into your like inbox every day. Do you have top pet peeves? I know in yeah. my book you helped me edit down the number of times I used the word heart. Oh, yeah, you had a lot of hearts in there. I, got, I was really, I was really, because I was also writing it at different times, so I was like, my dog's dying, my heart's like outside of my chest, drying up on the pavement, and I just talked about my heart all the time, and I hate that in music, I hate it in songs, I think it's so cheesy, yeah. but when you're first writing your first draft, for me, sometimes a cliche is a placeholder. Right, right, it's just for something draft. better. Totally. And then you get at it later. I think, so the things that I see happen a lot in student writing, and once I started seeing it in my students, I started seeing it in my writing, and then I could edit it out, are just little body language ticks all the time. Sighing. People are always sighing. They roll their eyes constantly. There's a lot of nodding, which is totally unnecessary. Like, I would say 99% of the time, if a character nods, you can cut it. We know that they're, they agree, you know, they'll just be like, he nodded and pointed at something. Um, uh, putting hands on the hips, stomping out of rooms, and stumbling. I've noticed that, in, and I actually had a stumble in, like, the first, like, people don't just go out a door. They always stumble out a door or stumble down a hall. And, like, I can't imagine the world is actually that clumsy. Like, you can try to literally picture how often people stumble on the page versus stumble in real life yeah. so little little language ticks like that I would find and also certain kind of narrative cliche, like yeah if, if some things would become really predictable I hate epiphanies I've now become completely allergic to epiphanies what do you mean I hate an epiphany an epiphany as a climax in a story and I used to write that all the time because I didn't know plot I didn't know how to make something happen so the character would just suddenly realize something you don't have to make you don't have to set anything up for a character to realize something it just hits them right and then and I feel like this happens a lot in like in, in predictable movies and television too like mm-hmm. somebody just realizes and then it's all a light shout and it was all over yeah yeah um here, let me show you my notes. Okay. <laughs> I want to talk about something that came up in an interview did, you did, which is heteronormativity is karaoke. <laughs> Thank, can Where's you speak Lady, on yeah. that? That was Lenny Zunis's trigger for me. It was yeah. such a great line. Yeah. Um, well, I was thinking, so, so yeah, Lenny was asking like about why uh, uh, karaoke is, what the role it plays in the story. It was a really thought-provoking question. I had to think about it for a little bit. But I guess the idea is that like, I mean, I love karaoke, and I sang so much karaoke in Portland. Um, I went to Portland to karaoke every week with Douglas Wolk, and we had a rule that you couldn't sing the same song twice. So it really, you know, it. it, it I, I really feel like Portland does karaoke better than any other city. It's true. Like there's a there's an ethos. There's like an etiquette. Like there's songs you you don't do Bohemian Rhapsody. Like you don't do Love Shack. You don't do American Pie. People don't know that in other cities. They also don't know that you'd bring up one slip at a time. I mean, I could go on. I mean, you, I used to be a KJ. I can attest to all this. Right. There's all these things. But so I, I love karaoke because of the way that it's, it's, or I think I'm kind of fascinated by it. It's this pre-recorded track that somebody else did, and you sing it in your own voice, and some people try to sound exactly like the track. You know, they, like, imitate all the vocal mannerisms of the original singer, and then some people completely make it their own, right? And I feel like maybe that's kind of heteronormativity, too, if I may be, you know, paint with so broad a brush. <laughs> 
which is that there's this kind of pre-recorded track that you're like sent on like we're almost all of us unless you had really cool parents are sent on from the very beginning of like you will marry and reproduce and like do follow this particular kind of capitalist track in society right and most of us do it in some form or another you know I know I do it in some ways even though I'm not hetero I mean I can sense like we all have our normative tendencies or most of us do right um so I guess it's that idea of like there's this there's this predestined thing and like how closely are you going to sing it to the original how much are you going to try to make it your own or but of course there's the alternative which is just write your own song what (laughs) I had this no one's going to like this but I had this long talk on a hike with someone about how Carrie Bradshaw was like had a queer well, she kind of had, like, a queer trajectory. She had the queer art of failure. Ah. Like, that show is interesting because she was, like, kind of trying for this heteronormative thing, but it wasn't working for her, and That's she had this true. alternative lifestyle. Not on topic. Um, <laughs> but I thought about that when you were saying that. Yeah. Did, when you moved here, did you feel like Portland was a gay utopia, or did you ever have an idea of that? It's like a utopia and a dystopia all at the same time. Yeah. Were the, What were the dystopic parts? Just that you, like, it was so insular and people felt judgmental? Well, this is, yeah, and I write about this in the book, and this is part of me kind of cracking that, like, I'm too nice to everybody is I thought about like the Portland gossip vortex right like I would go to LA and see people and they would start telling me Portland gossip like it's just there's like a a pipeline down the coast Mm -hmm. like and that people would be like oh man in 2001 she had this really thing where blah, blah, and you're like it's 2008 why are we still talking about that <laughs> like whatever you do is on your permanent record forever like you can't shed it and the gossip never dies it like never gets old I just referenced a conversation with somebody today that I had seven years ago and I was like I think that's still their opinion <laughs> <laughs> exactly but it's a utopia because again like there's so many people here that I mean I still love and then I, I've never I've never found like a replacement kind of community that also felt so exciting and people are doing really interesting things and just like have really good hearts and yeah, I Do loved you, it. I will always miss it. How does it feel when you come here now? I cry every time I land at the airport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I managed to, I, I am always like, whoa, that's a crazy new building. I don't know where I am for a minute. But I still manage to follow the same kind of track of all the haunts that I love. And it it still feels like home in its own way. Is there one place that particular, like when you first get here, you're like, I have to go to these places on my first day? It's usually people's houses. Like, I go see friends. Can we have their addresses? Yes. <laughs> One house is at that big sunflower on Belmont and Yamhill. Okay, <laughs> okay, we know that. One house is in my old neighborhood of, of Arbor Lodge. We'll be and doing the Stray City tour. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, an, I always like to go to my new season, the Arbor Lodge new seasons. I love like, going to new seasons as soon as I land. Right? <laughs> and now I feel rich because I can get things from the bulk bins, like anything I want from the bulk bins. Do you use the real code? <laughs> oh, shoot. I do. <laughs> I do. That's how I know that like I'm no longer the same like desperate starving young punk I was when I lived here. So I'm like I can get that like chocolate cluster from the bulk bin. You're not I just like, never have allowed myself that before. You shove it in your mouth as fast as you can and then walk away if you see someone who works there. No, I pay for it in full. Come on. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Why well, not? There's something in the in the lesbian lexicon. There's a word called punk damage, which is when you have been punk and poor and done all these kind of workarounds and then you get older and that's not appropriate anymore and maybe you don't need to do it anymore. Yeah. But you still have it in you where you like this nutritional yeast is seven dollars for this much and you feel like a full body like you get in a cold sweat yeah and then that's your punk damage like when i almost recently rented an apartment that had nothing but a futon in it yeah it's like i thought i could live in for a month an empty apartment with only a futon and like spiders this was two months ago yeah (laughs) i realized within one minute but it was not the right place for me but you were like it's such a good savings yeah the punk damage is real Not to be a Seinfeld, but have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? 
or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts, because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much. That's your business via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday, and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and Blue Apron and whatever, but in the meantime, thank you. We appreciate your support, and I look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. That was Ponyo's voice. Don't be scared. Bye. Thank you this week to Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Mary Pinson, Christy Harrod, and Madeline Berger. Okay, you're a teacher. Yes. I heard that you're a teacher. I Yeah, I teach creative writing at the College of William & Mary. Mm-hmm. Did you, is it true or false that you were teaching a novel writing class before you had finished writing your novel? It is true. My I, God. I taught the novel writing class three times, like throughout the course, and I was working on my novel, I think, throughout all but the third time. And teaching that class, part of the reason I taught it is because, well, the students wanted it and I thought they were ready for it. But uh, also I thought it would be really interesting to take what I had learned so far and apply it to what, you know, to teaching and helping them to do those things. And also because I wanted to just keep, I wanted an excuse to keep working on my own stuff, like alongside my students, you know, Mm -hmm. because I feel the the best thing about teaching is that you're also continually learning, I think, if you're doing it right. Um, you know, you're assigning books you haven't read yet, and then you read them, or, you know, you the, what the students, their take on a story or their take on a writing assignment will give you new ideas that you hadn't, you know, give you a new way of looking at things you hadn't thought about before. But so that was definitely the case with the novel writing classes. It was really fun to work with them on on talking about how to structure a novel and the different ways you can do it and all these different ways you can problem solve in the course of it, because I had learned so much of it the hard way already. Yeah. How do you, what advice do you have for students that come into like an MFA writing class Mm -hmm. and they have an idea for a novel or in my case, a graphic novel that they've been carrying around since high school that they're like, finally, and for a graphic novel, that's quite, it's much more laborious. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say it, but any idea you've been carrying around in your head since your teenage years or your middle school years needs to go. It is not, it is not going to stand the test of time. It's like if it sits for too long, it starts to rot. Mm. It gets like bloated and smelly. It's no longer good. And I think we get really attached to ideas that we've, we've held onto for a long time. But I can say from experience that I've had students in a few different classes bring in something that they've had as an idea since middle school, since they were 11 or 12. And finally, they're writing it. And it's not good. Well, it's probably not as good as the new ideas they're having after yeah. doing exercises in your class. Yeah, it get, it also it gets them stuck in like this way of of doing a, of telling a story. And I think the longer you've held on to the idea of the story, the more it sort of calcifies, and they can't see beyond like that original vision that they had for it. And I think the whole thing that happens when you're writing something, especially something long, is that what the, the book you start writing is not the book you end up writing. It's enti- often entirely different. You know, it's like the Argo. Like you 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 take off so many pieces 
pieces and put on so many new ones that it's a totally different ship by the end of the thing. Mm -hmm. And so if you come in really attached to this one idea that you've been holding on forever, you're just going to end up kind of cycling in the same rut over and over again, and it's not going to go anywhere interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> what is a what is an exercise or a prompt you give your students? So, say that you're a student and you came, you're like, I had this idea I'm in love with from high school. Yeah. I know as a teacher, I ask them to just like put it on a shelf for a second. Uh-huh. Trust me. Yeah. Just give me a little bit of your trust. Do these exercises with me, yeah. and then, you know, you want to revisit it at the end of the semester. Like it's not going anywhere. Yeah. But just like, let's give yourself a chance to be a student and actually learn something new. Yeah. Instead of just like trying to shove this thing into it. Mm -hmm. So what exercises or prompts do you give people? Well, one thing I tell students when they when they bring in something that they're attached to that they've that they've had in in their hearts or in their minds for a long time is, okay. So what is it like? Sometimes it helps to kind of abstract it a little bit, like beyond just like who are the characters and what's the plot, but ask them, okay, so what is it that you like about this? Like, what are the ideas in this that you care about? And it turns out, you know, well, I'm interested in, like, you know, power or, like, you know, the gender hierarchies within this this world. Or I want to tell a sort of, you know, finding yourself story or whatever it might be. And if you can think about the idea and then say, okay, so can you kind of let go of the really specific things about who they are and what they do and think about the ways that your story is going to serve those kind of bigger ideas instead? And, like, that kind of helps them, I think, break out of that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. Sometimes you'll get a writer who's just really stubborn and just insists, no, this is the story I'm planning to tell. And I just also at a certain point let go and I'm like, okay, tell the story that you need to tell. Mm -hmm. And maybe you just need to get that one out of your system and then we can move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really liked this. um, I really liked what you were talking about from your novel writing class Mm. when I saw you speak in L.A. with Carrie Brownstein. Which is um, kind of putting your characters in the worst case scenario. Yeah. Can you talk about that? As far, and that, that would be for like a, a big story, like right. a novel length story. Well, there's a couple ways in which I think worst case scenarios are really productive for writing. And one is to uh, just, to, you know, this can work for a short story or for a novel or for a script or whatever. But to, to put characters in a forced choice scenario where they have two options and neither one is good or neither one is easy mm-hmm. or they have to choose between the two like there's inherent tension either way it's kind of a win-win for the reader and the writer even mm-hmm. if not for the character and uh the other way and this is what I, I think i was addressing in that that talk at the west hollywood public library is in thinking about where your long project should end like how do you end this thing that you've worked on for so long and thought about for so long sometimes it can seem really daunting and so one exercise i have them do is write down first you write down like the very best possible ending that could happen to your characters like the wish fulfillment lifetime movie like everything goes well and so they do that and then they say okay now you have to write down the worst case scenario what would be the worst thing you could make happen to them and so they write that down and then finally we say okay so um what would be an ending that borrows from both of those categories um how can you kind of combine the two Mm-hmm. And that really hits that sweet spot where you get bittersweetness, where you get emotional complexity. And it's also just more plausible and more real. And I think that's really satisfying. I think a happy ending can ultimately be super unsatisfying. It can feel dishonest if everything goes perfectly. And I also think a completely tragic ending can just feel sort of sadistic and self-indulgent. Yeah. So I love finding the place where both of those two commingle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just watched them. This is off topic. I just yeah. watched the movie up in the air uh-huh. and oh, I was yeah. like, did you see that? Yeah. It's been a long time. It was so weird. This is, this is Nicole's hot take from a movie that came out <laughs> 10 years ago. It's that at the end of the movie, you're just, I was like, what happened? Mm-hmm. 
is he just still traveling? I don't understand. And so then I Googled it. I looked at, I Wikipedia it. I was like, what the fuck just happened in this movie? Cause it's like, he travels, he travels, he travels. Then they're eliminating his position. Just kidding. They're not, but he realizes that traveling and being a solo person is kind of like, you know, leaves a vacancy in your yeah. soul. And then at the end of the movie, he's looking up at a board in an airport with a bag, just like he could go anywhere. I thought it was just an ad for the Million Miler program on American Airlines or United it's Essentially. <laughs> no, but then he gets it and it feels hollow. I like he, the whole movie. He yeah, had been aiming sure. for the Million Mile thing. But so then I looked it up, and in the book, you find out that he has a terminal illness. Huh. And so it's essentially like he has a terminal illness, and he's like trying to outrace it with all this traveling, but he still feels empty. And I was like, oh, that would have been much better if he would have... Yeah. If you would have found out that he was, like, dying of cancer at the end of this. Right. Anyway, that's, I just, like, that was just a, a side note. I realized in the book it was much more tragic. And in the movie they they kind of took all the cancer out of it. And then you were left with this movie that you were, like, it kind of rang right. false. Or you were, like, who cares? It just felt about like it was about vacancy. Yeah. That's tricky, though, because I also feel like in movies, if you threw in that cancer twist at the end, it could feel like a, and then they all died. Or, like, and then I woke. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. It could feel like a little bit of a a, a gotcha moment. Gotcha. For the viewer, you know? Well, I want to know, Chelsea, I am an autobiographer. Yeah. But I feel that in your fiction, a lot of your characters feel very real mm-hmm. because it seems like they have a foot in nonfiction. Yeah. Can you talk about how you take details from the real world and then fictionalize? Yeah, definitely. Um, I Yeah, my fiction is not autobiographical usually. There are always elements, of course, like often characters happen to be from where I'm from or lived where I lived. Um, and a lot of the side characters, as you said, do have a foot in like in, in real people in real situations, both in terms of their circumstances and in their characteristics. I, I try not to like, I never want to just write somebody straight onto the page exactly as they are because I think it's actually really hard to capture somebody's essence like that's the gift of nonfiction writers to be able to capture who somebody is in just a few lines it's more fun if you can kind of fuse a few traits of different people or if you can take like one way that I really enjoy creating characters in general is find one little tick or trait of somebody and then you kind of build a character around that like you exaggerate it a little and then you you create a character that that goes around that um so I think that's the way that I did it is I would, you know, think about like a quality that one of my friends had and I would be like, okay, that's going to be that character's defining quality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this character uh, really likes to be right and is really, you know, knowledgeable and wants to help her friends, but it considers herself sort of an unofficial life coach. So I'm just going to kind of exaggerate that quality about that character and let that be her defining trait, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. And then how do you make their, can you talk about their dialogue and how you make their dialogue realistic? And also, yeah. when you, you have a lot of side characters in this from the Portland community. Mm-hmm. So talk about dialogue, but then also when you had them all together yeah. in one scene. Oh, yeah. Okay, that was interesting. Because that can really differentiate. And I feel like the hard thing with my students is a lot of the times it's like their voice coming out of a bunch of different people's mouths. Yeah. And that wasn't happening in your book. That's really easy to do that, to just like give everybody your own voice. And that's where you really have to think about who those people are and what motivates everything they do. Even if you're kind of, if you're not giving them like a full-fledged like biography, you you kind of have to know it yourself. I felt like I know I knew the backstory of all of my characters, even if it didn't make it into the book. Like in my notes, there's like a few pages about who Summer is and where she came from and how she got to where she is now. She's she's Andrea's roommate in the story. She's a, a dancer who happens to be a really talented cook too. Anyway, okay. So in far, as far as as dialogue goes, well, one thing that is that's interesting that I read somewhere once is that um, ninety like only only seven percent of our our communication um, 
is through language, is through dialogue. Like most of it's nonverbal cues, right? It's it's how you look and the way you interact with your surroundings and it's gesture and body language and tone. Like the words you say are such a tiny amount of it, which is I think why we get so screwed up with text messages and the current modes of communication. There's no nuance, there's no other tone. So when you're writing dialogue, it's really useful to think about, okay, so you know, for example, I'll do this exercise with my students. If you see two people sitting across the room from you at a restaurant, how can you tell without hearing any words they're saying that they're on a Tinder date, right? Like what in their body language, what in like the the tone of their voice or the, the actions they do or how they like work with the things around them would tell you that. And so we talk about that. And then you think like, okay, how would you know from across them that they were having a fight with each other? Or how would you know? So you can tell these dynamics through nonverbal cues. So I always try to incorporate those. Um, think about how to use gesture and all those, all those elements to convey what somebody's saying so you don't have to say, you know, she said angrily or he said with surprise. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I try to never use adverbs um, or to use them only when I really have to. Um, as far as like how characters talk to each other, that's when it really helps to think about, again, who they are where they came from, what kind of baggage they're bringing to a scenario. So, for example, there's a chapter in the book that is a a family dinner scene. By family dinner, I mean the queer family. They do this once a month as sort of a ritual um, that kind of blows up. It's, It's a lesbian bloodbath. Basically, and in order to do that, I it took me so long to write that scene. And there's like a page in my notebook. I have a big, you know, moleskin folio notebook, and it's spread out. It's a full spread where I map out like where everyone is sitting around the table, and then I drew lines between each character. And along each line, I described like what the dynamic between the characters were in that scene mm-hmm. and how they would react to each other. And then to actually construct the scene. Um, I thought about those. Uh, I used those as sort of a reference point, and I did it by writing it down, obviously. I also did a lot of it by dictation when I was driving. I would, like, have the argument aloud with myself so I could hear how it sounded, and then I wrote and rewrote and rewrote it. So the other thing I would say is it's really important in dialogue to rewrite. Like, you'll write a really crappy first version where people just say everything and kind of prompt each other to say the next thing, and it all flows out really easily, but it's not good. And then you have to make it, like, denser and denser. Like, I feel like lines of dialogue should be super charged and super loaded. So you cut out all the kind of filler stuff where somebody just says what, or somebody just repeats back what the person already said right to them. Um, And you try to find an element of surprise where you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell what the person would say right after um, somebody says something, right? So it's not that ping pong dialogue where you could cover, cover it with one hand and you could predict what the next line would be. But to have people kind of surprise each other, people also often don't answer each other directly, right? If you say, what were you up to last night? You might say like, oh, do you have any almonds? I'm really hungry, you know, yeah. <laughs> instead of being like, I'm not going to tell you, you yeah. know? So thinking about ways to just always make it more interesting and kind of keep things moving and on their toes. Well, Chelsea, that's it. Cool. Thanks for being on Sagittarian Matters. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be on. And producer Ponyo is like really happy to be working with you in this in this regard too. Oh yeah, I'm going to go hold her in my arms right now and thank her. <laughs> her tail's wagging. Yeah. <laughs> Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.